0: invite you to join me now as I pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a great morning, great morning to celebrate you and your love for us as we can see in the gifts that you give to us, including that gift of salvation, the gift of the children, the gift of your word now that instructs us how we can live. So we thank you for this and thank you that as we look for a few moments now at what you've instructed us, that we'll be good learners, we'll be good followers, we'll be what you want us to be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying the book of Titus together uh, for several reasons, one of which is, as you may have heard a couple of times this morning, we're looking for a couple of pastors right now, including myself. There's a search committee to replace me. In the next year or two or three or six, or I'm not sure exactly when. Um, but I, I will be retiring at some point. Titus is a great book that talks about leadership, and we want all of us to understand what it is we're looking for when we talk about leaders, whether it's a pastor or an elder or a trustee, deacon, whatever it may be, and including every one of us as an individual. Wouldn't it be great if every one of us could be what Michael was singing about a little while ago? the example for these young ones to be looking to us. So family members and special friends of these five that were dedicated today, uh, what a great responsibility, but an awesome one that is before us. So let me encourage you, all of us, uh, to pay careful attention to where we are this morning because these are qualities of a godly leader, not limited to positions of leadership in the church, but for all of us. So if you'll turn with me in the scriptures, I'd like to pick up the reading in Titus chapter 1, and we'll pick up the reading in verse 5. If you would like to follow along in a pew Bible in front of you, it's found on page 998. That's Titus chapter 1, and I'll begin reading with verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, and this is the Apostle Paul writing to a young protege, Titus, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And those elders would be involved in the work of the church. Here's what they're looking for in those elders. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, in other words, for elder or even pastor, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, you may have noticed in verse 7 we have some negative qualities that we're supposed to be avoiding. It tells us specifically not these kinds of things. They shouldn't be included in the lives of those who are leading others, whether that's in the home or the church as well. But then that word but, and some of the translations use the word rather, the beginning of verse 8 introduces a contrast, the positive side of the coin. These are qualities that a leader should have. Someone has written this. One of the strengths of the church lies in the fact that those who hold various offices do so because they want to. They desire to. Yet the voluntary nature of Christian service can pose some problems. Since a shortage of willing workers exists in many local congregations, standards are sometimes lowered, and positions or responsibilities are filled by unqualified and immature believers. This weakens the body of Christ and often results in spiritual casualties. We can see the same thing in the military. When the military draft ended, certain branches of the military fell behind in meeting their personnel quotas. For this reason, some recruiters used trickery and unethical practices to get volunteers through their intelligence and physical Exams, In other words, they cheated. People who shouldn't have passed the intelligence tests or the physical exams were allowed to do so. At first, this seemed to get the job done because they were looking for bodies and they got bodies. But then the roof fell in. A Marine lost his life during combat drills. It appears he was allowed to sidestep the requirements. He was not qualified to be where he was. And who knows how many other casualties there were. When it comes to keeping the church strong, God's word indicates that only spiritually qualified people should fill the positions of service that are available. It's so our responsibilities as members of this church to choose very carefully and very prayerfully the kind of leaders that have God's approval. And it's the responsibility of the leaders to make sure that they measure up. This is a constant Test for all of the leaders to say, is this who I am before God? And all of the rest of us, as we're looking for leaders, we say, is this the person described? Particularly in Titus chapter 1, but in 1 Timothy 3, there's a parallel list of what we're looking for in church leaders. So I'd like to share today from verse 8 and verse 9 as well, seven positive qualities of a leader, beginning with this one. Hospitable. Hospitable and having trouble with my remote here. There we go. Hospitable is a word made up from a Greek word, and the New Testament was written largely in Greek, and so we refer a lot to Greek words uh, so that we can get a full meaning. But you can see it's, it's a word that is made up of two other words in the Greek language. And those words have meaning. It's affection plus strangers, or another way you could put it is loving strangers. That's what hospitality is all about. The leader that God wants, the positive qualities, starts out with hospitable, loving strangers. It's the one who's fond of guests. And at the time this was written, It would be written to one who was ready to befriend and to give housing to a lot of Christians who were traveling for one reason or another. Part of the time that traveling would have involved fleeing persecution because it wasn't popular to be a Christian back at that time. So oftentimes the Christians would have to flee, particularly locally, and sometimes it was empire-wide. When the Christians were under persecution, so there was a lot of traveling going on, some normal, but a lot of it was to flee the persecution. Christians traveling in those days avoided the public inns. They really didn't want to stop there. There were a lot of things in those public inns that made them very uncomfortable. It was a pagan atmosphere. They had food that was served that had already been offered to idols. Those places were filled with brawls, drunken brawls, and all sorts of bad things that were going on. They really didn't want to go to those public inns. They had not begun leaving the light on at Motel 6's yet. They hadn't started to look at what Sheridan had done for them lately. They didn't even have access to the best deals on hotels. If you can imagine a world like this, no Trivago, no Kayak, no Expedia, no Hotels.com, they didn't really know where to go, but they did have something. They had bed and breakfasts that Christians would do for each other. It was a, a great time for them. It was kind of an underground railroad where the Christians who were fleeing, the Christians who were traveling, they would be able to find out where other Christians were, and they would offer hospitality. That was something that they would do at the drop of a hat. So hospitality, a little bit different than, than we would probably refer to it today. How do we apply this same principle to our actions today? Here's what one writer, John MacArthur, has said. Hospitality says, One who gives practical help to anyone in need, whether it's a friend or a stranger, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, this describes one that freely offers time and resources and encouragement to meet the needs of others. That means that any one of us can be hospitable. We don't even have to have a home or lodging to offer to somebody, but we can give practical help to others. The Believer's Bible Commentary puts it this way. On the positive side, a bishop, and that's another word for overseer or elder or pastor, must be hospitable. His home should always be open to strangers, to those with personal problems, To the disheartened and the oppressed, it should be a place of happy Christian fellowship, now note this, where every guest is received as if he were the Lord himself. That's asking a lot, and it's also giving us a great privilege to treat others as if the Lord Jesus Christ were visiting within our home. One of the great barriers to hospitality is time. We haven't allowed ourselves time, many of many of us haven't, in order to be hospitable, to be thinking about others instead of just ourselves. Another barrier to hospitality is an unwillingness sometimes of one spouse to be hospitable. The other spouse is off for it, but the other one is not. Um, so we've got to be careful as we talk together and make sure that we're in ministry as couples, as families with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to minister to him and for him. You don't have to be gifted in hospitality in order to be hospitable. Sometimes we talk about spiritual gifts, and hospitality is one of them. But every one of us can be hospitable. Every one of us can be looking out for others. There are two examples of the noun form of this, this, of this word. One of them is found in Romans twelve thirteen, where it says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Seek To show it. Be looking for opportunities to do that. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now get this, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. How would you like to do that? There's a stranger who needs help and you offer to help. Maybe you change a flat tire, you help somebody and it could be an angel. We don't know according to what it tells us in the scriptures. So there were three circumstances that gave a lot of opportunity for hospitality to be entertained. Persecution at that time, poverty, and the plight of widows. And God's people, the church, would meet those needs and be hospitable and would be encouraged to do more so. Some of the families in our church have been absolutely amazing with their hospitality. There's one lady that I would embarrass her to death if I mentioned her name, but I can't believe how much she is giving to help someone else. And I know the rest of you, when it comes time for missionary conference, we have missionaries coming in to spend days or a week, and we ask who would be willing to put up those missionaries. People respond. People respond in a great way. It's much appreciated. There's a lot that goes on that's very, very positive Max Lucado, an author and pastor that many of you read, uh, he, he wrote this in Outlive Your Life. He said, hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. It's no accident that hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to the same result, healing. When you open your door to someone, you are sending this message. You matter to me and to God. You may think that you're saying, come over for a visit, but what your guest hears is, I'm worth that effort. Do you know what? Hospitality, even in the church, even today, we can exercise hospitality before we leave here because we may find somebody that we don't know, and we may say a word of greeting, a word of encouragement. I'm so glad you're here. It's more special because you're here. And I tell you honestly, for our guests today, it's so much more special for all of us and for the parents of the children, uh, thank you for coming. And uh, we're excited about the fact that you're here. And I, and I trust that you'll feel right at home. I, I trust that all of us are going to be hospitable and greeting and welcoming one another. So that's the first of the seven. They won't all be this long. The second one, we're told this quality, and again we're in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, It's not but. It's not some of these other things in verse 7, but in verse 8, but hospitable. And then it says, a lover of good. So one who loves what is good. Can you imagine one of our children today who is dedicated growing up and the influential people in his or her life are those who love what is good and are surrounded with what is good? What an advantage that gives to that child. To see that going on one who is good. And again, we'll we'll show these Greek words, but this is philagathos. It means friend and benevolent. It's a combination of those two or fond of good or the most clear one is loving goodness. This is somebody who loves goodness. It's nowhere better illustrated. It doesn't use the word good here. But in Philippians chapter four, verse verse eight, listen, as I read this, it says, finally, brothers, and at the end of this verse, it's going to say these are the kinds of things to think about. These are the kinds of things to saturate your mind with. And here's what they are. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are all good things. Now, what do you think about a lot? What fills your mind? What do you read? What do you view on screens? Would it be something that would be true and honorable and all of these great qualities that all add up to something that is good? Or would it be a lot of trash, a lot of garbage, a lot of things that you would never want your child or grandchild or nephew or niece to be involved with? But remember, they're going to be looking to you. Romans twelve nine says, let love be real. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hate it. Hold fast to what is good. And so we have hospitable. We have one who loves what is good. Question, are you? And are you maybe as a potential leader or a leader right now? Are you holding fast, clinging to what is good? Or is it possible that what is evil is tolerated or even embraced? 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form or appearance of evil. That which strikes the eye, it looks bad. Get away from it. That's what we're told. One who loves what is good. One of the commentaries says this, his speech, his activities, and his associations should reveal that he is separated from all that is shady, questionable, or wrong. Is that you? Thirdly, we're called to be self-controlled. The leaders should be self-controlled, but all of us should be self-controlled. We see that here in verse 8 again. It's from another word, sophron in the Greek, one who is safe or sound in his mind. He's moderate in opinions or passions. In other words, he's under control. He's not given to extreme defenses of his own positions. He's not overly defensive. He's discreet, sober, temperate, doesn't go overboard, doesn't lose it. He's in control. The word actually means power over Power over one's emotions, power over one's habits, power over one's self. How many of you love tests? Whoops. (laughs) How many of you tolerate tests? How many of you hate them? Uh Uh-oh. Well, we're going to have a test anyway. This is a test or a self-test. We're looking at church leaders, the nominating committee, the search committees. They have to be looking at these qualities, but all of us have to be looking at ourselves. This is a test then, or a self-test, of self-control. Here's the test. You're testing somebody, and again, maybe it's yourself. Watch him in a competition. That's a great test to see if there's self-control. Competitiveness. Athletics can bring out the best and the worst an individ- individual. If you're not with me yet, think back to church softball. Can you imagine the nominating committee with their clipboards going to a church softball game and saying, "Let's see how he does here in this game. Let's particularly look for self-control." How many of you who played church softball would not have wanted the nominating committee to be watching you? you just put your hand up if you will. That's okay. Here's another one. Here's a test. Watch him drive. You can tell a lot about somebody the way that he drives. Watch him drive. Self control. Remember, we're talking about this This is a test of self control. Not just driving. Watch him when he gets cut off. Watch him when somebody blows the horn blaringly at him. Watch him when somebody makes an obscene gesture toward him for no reason that he can think of. Another test. Watch him at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Remember, we're talking self-control here. Watch him disciplining his children when the child has really provoked him. Is he still under control? Watch his reaction when someone disagrees with him, when someone insults or embarrasses or humiliates him. Watch him when the computer crashes in the middle of a very important task that he's doing. Watch him when the Eagles are penalized, nullifying a big gain, and it's a really iffy penalty. Self-control. Watch him when Dallas scores. Oops. (laughs) Okay, enough at the test. That word self-control is used all throughout the Scriptures. It's used all throughout the book of Titus. If you're still open to Titus 1, turn... To Titus chapter 2, if you will, please, for just a moment. Look at verse 2. We're going to pick on the older men for a minute. Instructions specifically. First of all, how many of you are older men? Okay, I see there's some older men who are here. Alrighty. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. So who among us should be self-controlled? Well, we've seen leaders already, and now the older men, we've got to add you to that. But look at Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and through 5. How many older women? No, I'm not going to ask that, but it's older women, likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. I'll stop there. There are other attributes, but to be self-controlled. So specifically right now, older men, older women, but the older women are teaching the younger women, it says. Train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. So right now, older men, older women, young women, all of them are supposed to be self-controlled. Titus 2.6. How many of you are younger men? Younger men? Huh. We're going to change the message, and we're going to go to one on lying. (laughs) Um, Titus 2.6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Anybody feel left out yet that you can forget about being self-controlled? Well, if you do, look at Titus 2.12. Training, it says, us that's all of us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Fourthly, we're told that the qualification, the quality that is being looked for is one of somebody who is upright. Again, in the Greek language, it's dikaios. It simply means fair. Somebody who is fair, who's upright. We're talking about integrity. We're talking about somebody who has the good qualities of of honesty. It's used 81 times in the New Testament, so you can imagine there are a lot of times when we're told to be upright. Often it's used of God. The upright overseer or elder or pastor reflects the just and fair character of God himself. If you want to be reminded of something that is upright, I'm going to put something on the screen in just a moment that... All of you, knowing me, you know exactly what, when I talk about upright, what's going to remind you of upright. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, some of you who know me well. That's right, an upright piano. Is that what you thought I was going to have? Did you think I was going to have, whoops, (laughs) another kind of an upright? For those of you that can't see the screen, um, the first upright was an upright piano. When you see an upright piano, think about we're called to live uprightly. When you see a goalpost on a football field, which is now on the screen, uh, think about that being upright. Number five is the word holy. It's not the usual Greek word, but it's a similar one that we see, but it's the, the Greek word hosios. Undefiled by sin, free from wickedness, religiously observing every moral obligation, pure, pious. We understand what that is. It's often used of God as well. Here's one of the commentaries, another one that says, He should be a man of integrity who sticks by his word and who practices what he preaches. His conduct is righteous. Sixthly, he should be one who is disciplined. This is very close in meaning to self-controlled. Someone who is disciplined... There's a Greek word for that as well that means strong, robust, having power over, possessed of, mastering, controlling, curbing, restraining, very close to self-control. In fact, some of the translations use self-controlled here. Self-controlled could actually be twice in this list. Somebody who's disciplined, think about the, the English words when we use and disciplined or self control how close those words are to each other. If you have an NIV study Bible, you'll see this possessing the inner strength to control one's desires and actions. Somebody who's disciplined, does not go off on all of these tangents, does not get lost in all of these things, but is under control. The last three qualities that we mentioned, upright, holy, and disciplined, have been viewed by some as looking manward, godward, and selfward, respectively. So upright people are looking. Holy, God is looking. Disciplined, I'm looking at myself. And lastly, we have doctrinally fit. Doctrinally fit. This is in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must hold firm. Strongly cling to it means adhere to something or someone, in this case to the trustworthy message, to the word of God. He's somebody who respects and reverence and practices and obeys God's word and teaches that. He encourages others who teach God's word. And when people are trying to say things that are contrary to God's word, he's not ashamed to speak up and say, but that's not the way God tells us it should be. Yes, doctrine is important, it tells us here in Titus, and we need to keep that in our minds. If you have an ESV study Bible, let me share with you one quote from the ESV Bible. It was common in the ancient world to emphasize one item in a list by placing it either at the beginning or the end and giving it more attention than the others. Now, if you're looking at Titus chapter 1, verse 9, is the last in a list of seven. There's more said about that than the other things. So this is important, and that's the point that is being made here. This is something that is important. As we look at all seven of these, they're all important, but above reproach is at the beginning of two lists and doctrinally fit, meaning that we know and keep God's Word very, very important. But let me summarize where we are. Here's a composite of the elder overseer pastor. This is a composite picture. He needs to be above reproach. It tells us that in chapter 1 of Titus, verse 6 and verse 7, twice it's there, means unaccused, irreproachable, which cannot be called to account. It means squeaky clean. It's a wrestling term, as it was originally used. You can't even let your enemy get a hold on you. Obviously, you don't want to get pinned, but don't even let that enemy get a hold on you. And he needs to be above reproach in his home as well. If you glance down at Titus chapter 1-6, we've been there in our study before, he needs to be above reproach as a husband, as a father. He needs to be socially above reproach. We've seen that in verse 7 and verse 8. This is the the idea that he's not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. But he also needs to be spiritually above reproach, the rest of the qualities that we were looking at here this morning. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, holding firmly to the trustworthy word. In other words, he needs to be somebody who is well-balanced in his Christian life. And search committees, nominating committees, need to be looking for someone like that. And each of us needs to be looking inward that we be that type of person. And each of us who has an influence over a child who is growing up needs to say, I want my child to see this in me. I want to be that example. This is the kind of example that we just saw in God's word. Pray for our senior pastor search committee. Pray for them, and as Pastor Kevin prayed earlier, be patient with them. They're looking for an individual who meets these qualifications. Pray that the search committee will do a lot better job than the last search committee did 35 years ago. And pray that God would help each one of us to be this kind of person. Let's pray together and ask the Lord for that help. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us know what it is that you're looking for in leaders in the church, leaders in the home, in Christians. May we be very, very serious about doing it your way, not necessarily the way we're used to doing it, not necessarily the way we want to do it, but the way you want us to do it, the way it should be done. So thank you for giving us these qualifications. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.